0: No purchase necessary, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Before we get started, we'd love to give a shout-out to our monthly Patreon supporters who keep us on the air. We added a new one last month, Lynn. So thank you so much. Lynn Bradley, Dolores, Harry, Heidi, Jana, Jane, Justin, Laura, Linda, Lisa, Mary Beth, Michael, Mickey, Molly. Tiffany, Vicki, and Wendy for being our partners in crime. Well, crime-solving anyway.
2: And now... You should, you should be loved. You should be loved. You should be loved. You should be loved. Just like your mama did when you were just a little girl. be love, You should be loved Baby, I'm sorry That I let you down But I hope That it turns around
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of You Should Be Loved by John Saylor. John Saylor's a new one with us, right, Paula? He is. Hi, glad to hear it. A singer-songwriter from Youngstown. John is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you hear the entire song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers, and let's dig up a brand new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
3: Hi, everyone. Hey, since we got a little business out of the way, this might be a good episode also to remind people that we are part of the Odyssey Radio Network. That's a 24-hour internet radio station that is mostly geared around paranormal stories, but they also feature our true crime episodes as well. So check it out. Search Odyssey Radio Network on your browser, and they'll pop up at the top of your list. Lots of great content there. Now tonight we've got a very intriguing case. It's 117 years old. Took place in a Catholic church parsonage and even featured a visiting priest as an early suspect. How do you like that, Steve?
1: 117 years old. And here I said a brand new Ohio mystery. This is definitely an old one.
3: (laughs) You're you're right. It is. So listen, for this one, we're going to go to Lorraine, Ohio, specifically St. Joseph's German Catholic Church Parsonage at the corner of Ride Avenue and 8th Street. Now, it's May 1, 1903, when our story begins. The parsonage, for anybody who doesn't know, is where the church's priest lives, But on this day, 40-year-old Father Charles Reichlin was away. He'd been called to Kelly's Island to conduct a funeral, and since Kelly's Island didn't have their own resident pastor, he figured he'd do a little extra ministering there and expected to be gone for several days. Reichlin didn't live alone. His parsonage was looked after by his sister, Agatha, who had her own second-floor bedroom in the house. She did the housekeeping, helped run the church, and did a lot of charity work. Agatha was 34 years old, a pretty woman, and quite popular. She was also unmarried, and that brought with it a share of would-be suitors. One man in particular had been in her life for several years, but he had decided to return to Germany just a couple of months earlier. There had been one other beau once. He'd lived in Bellevue, and a detective would later say he uncovered a widower with children who lived west of the city that had pursued her with no luck. But nobody called on Agatha at the parsonage, and her brothers didn't think their sister was serious about anyone. Now, the third regular resident of the parsonage was a St. Bernard, said to be a barker who didn't like strangers. Father Charles and Agatha also had an older brother, 42-year-old Casimir. Casimir was editor of the Lorraine Post. All three siblings had lived at the Parsonage together for a few years before Casimir got married and moved out. When Father Charles went to Kelly's Island, Casimir moved in during his absence. I'm not sure why. Perhaps his wife was staying with family or... Maybe he thought it was appropriate for Agatha to have a chaperone. Because with Father Charles away, the duties of the Lorraine Church were going to be handled by Father Ferdinand Walser. He arrived on April 28, two days before Father Charles departed, and he planned to stay until May 5. Now, Father Ferdinand was a 52-year-old immigrant from Austria, gregarious and very well-liked. During his 25 years as a priest, he'd been assigned to several cities and several states, most recently serving as assistant pastor at Sacred Heart in Toledo. The Reichland siblings knew him well. Before his Toledo assignment the previous fall, Father Ferdinand had even lived with them for four months while assisting Father Charles. So let's go to the evening of April 30th. Agatha, Casimir, and Father Ferdinand had a couple of visitors over, and they were enjoying the evening. They had dinner, imbibed in some beer, played music, and sang German songs. Steve, uh, the Germans loved their beer back then, and the priests were not immune to the the charms of a good beer. Right. Now, at 10 p.m., after the visitors left, Father Ferdinand went to bed, but interestingly, not before first suggesting locking the windows against burglars. There had been several break-ins in the area. It's unknown if he and the Reichlands made a pass at the windows. The house wasn't in the best condition, and some window locks were broken. But, boy, it just seems to me it was almost prophetic that he would bring that up this night of all nights. Agatha and Casimir, they stayed up for another hour and retired around 11 p.m. The bedrooms were all on the second floor. Casimir slept in a room on one side of the hall. Agatha and Father Ferdinand were in rooms on the other side, separate rooms that were connected by an interior door. Each room had two beds in it. Now, lying in bed, Casimir reported he heard someone walking down the stairs and then coming right back up. He was familiar with Agatha's footsteps after all those years in that creaky old house, and he assumed it was her. Casimir will later say he had a feeling that something bad was coming. The idea of it even kept him awake for half an hour, but he finally nodded off around 11.30 p.m. At 1 a.m., A noise woke Father Ferdinand. He thought they were shots from a pistol, but shook off the notion and dozed off again. But then another noise woke him a second time. He heard Agatha moaning in the room next to his. He thought perhaps she was having a nightmare. He propped himself up on his elbow and waited to see if Casimir also heard the noise and was going to check on her but the noise abated and he assumed the nightmare was over and then his own nightmare because father Ferdinand heard a match strike and the door that connected his room to Agatha's opened standing in the frame holding a lantern was a tall slender man with a thin face black mustache and a slouch hat Steve, I can't even imagine opening my eyes to see somebody standing in my room.
1: Yeah, that's pretty creepy.
3: Well, the priest held it together and demanded to know what the man was doing, then shouted for Casimir that there was a burglar in the house. The intruder retreated into Agatha's room and closed the door. Casimir responded to the priest's cries and found Agatha's outside door open. The two doors between Agatha's room and the attic were also open, and the attic door was open. I almost had this image of this man like running and opening all these windows looking for a way out. Casimir climbed into the attic where he saw the window ajar and peering down into the night, he saw a ladder. Beneath it, Casimir returned to Agatha's room and found her dead. Her skull bashed in, apparently, as she slept. She was still tucked in bed. On her back, covers pulled up to her neck. Her nightgown was undisturbed. There was no sign of a struggle. Blood was already pooling beneath her head. The left side of her head was bruised and her left eye and cheek were discolored. If the intruder was a burglar, he left with nothing. Her watch and rings were still in plain sight. But if he wasn't a burglar, what possible motivation did he have? The police were called at 1.10 a.m., arriving 15 minutes later. The resident St. Bernard barked wildly at the new arrivals although he had been completely silent during the altercation upstairs, sleeping through it in the kitchen below Agatha's room. With the arrival of daylight, investigators poured over the outside of the house. The ladder outside the attic window turned out to belong to a neighbor, Mr. Sheehan. It had been taken from his property. It was an old, rickety thing. The neighbor warned it would collapse under the weight of a large man and a test proved that it could only have been used successfully by a smaller person. It was almost two feet short of reaching the attic window, though that same test also proved that a really agile man could have covered that distance if he had been on the ladder. There was no blood on the ladder, just a few footprints at the base of it. Police also found, eight feet away from the ladder, a five-pound rock, With blood and hair on it. A news report of the day noted that after police arrived, Father Ferdinand said he needed whiskey to calm his nerves. Now, here's a little interesting piece of color that came out. A news report of the day noted that after police arrived, Father Ferdinand said he needed whiskey to calm his nerves. An officer volunteered that he knew a barkeep who would answer the door at that hour. So the priest sent Casimir to get a jug of whiskey. The two men shared it with the police who had responded to the call. That was really odd. And frankly, it was going to get Father Ferdinand in a little bit of hot water because when a reporter asked him about this curious incident, Father Ferdinand defended it, saying, when men are nervous, as such, any event must make a man a stimulant is needed. I do not deny that I sent out for it. The day after the murder, officers brought in bloodhounds. They sent it at Agatha's bed, then followed it to Father Ferdinand's room, indicating both beds in his room. What did that mean? Somehow this, along with a report of how Father Ferdinand was pouring whiskey for everyone at the crime scene, led to widespread belief that, that the priest had killed Agatha. He was even briefly arrested, though police told reporters that mostly they were taking him into custody to protect him from the public. One report said the entire police force was even put to guarding the jail to stop him from being lynched, though I'm sure that was probably a bit of hyperbole. It was also revealed, I don't know if by police or an intrepid reporter, that Father Ferdinand had seen the inside of a jail cell once before. Some years back, in Clinton, Missouri, he had been arrested with another priest and accused of kidnapping and cruelty in regards to a boy that the priests had taken in. But in all fairness, that case was dismissed, and the accusation had come from the American Protestant Association during what had been described as a local war between the Catholics and the Protestants. The plaintiffs in that case were even fined for wasting the court's time. Now, Father Ferdinand was not in jail long. On May 5, four days after Agatha's murder, there was a coroner's inquest with a standing room-only crowd that spilled out into the court's hallway. There, it became quickly obvious that, There wasn't the slightest bit of evidence against the priest. They cleared him then and there. Through tears, the priest told the Inquisition, You have hurt me a great deal. Agatha Reichlin is the last person I would have killed, and I would not have killed anybody.
4: Step into the world of power, loyalty
3: Father Charles Reichlin, of course, has now returned from Kelly's Island, and he defended Father Ferdinand, telling the press those bloodhounds were put through their paces by officers who had already made up their minds as to the priest's guilt, possibly driven by religious prejudice. The inquest ended with the release of Father Ferdinand, and actually, local townsfolk quickly came to accept his innocence. But then, who did it? Theories abounded. A jilted lover? A robbery gone bad? A wild maniac on the loose? Police wondered if the rock had been brought in to kill the St. Bernard, presuming whoever entered the house knew the dog was there and would need to be quieted. But then police had to acknowledge that there were better ways to kill or quiet a dog if the intruder had indeed taken the time to plan this invasion. At one point, Agatha's body was exhumed for a second autopsy. The second doctor argued that she might have been attacked by two people, one holding her down while another beat her with the rock. The doctor who did the first autopsy strongly disagreed. Rumors and innuendos abounded. One vicious story that had nothing to support it but was a very stubborn tale was that Agatha and her brother, Father Charles, weren't siblings at all, but just pretended to be so they could live together in sin. Anyway, a handful of men were interviewed and cleared and the case grew cold. In October of that year, someone attempted to rob a Lorraine hotel called Farrell House by propping a ladder against a high rear-facing window. An employee held the window sash taut and screamed until the would-be burglar fled. Was that Agatha's killer using the same M.O.? In 1906, three years after the murder, the parsonage was torn down and a new one was built. The year after that, in 1907, Father Ferdinand Walser became ill, went home to Rome, Indiana, and died. The Reichlands attended his funeral. By the way, I want to give a shout out to Reddit. That's a forum where a hardworking volunteer collected a whole lot of info about this story, which is where I got the bulk of my research. Steve, what do you think? Uh, You know, the
1: the St. Bernard is really interesting to me. How many people uh, did he know, you know, felt comfortable around? And to think that this was a time where a lot of immigrants were coming over to America, the Catholic community was pretty pretty huge because they relied on their church. So how many people were did that dog personally know and was comfortable with them being in a house?
3: Well, that's a good point. And if this intruder had an idea of what was in that house, had he been in there before, um, that's a good point. Well,
1: that sounds like a good time to bring in our Ohio Mysteries listener to be our armchair detective tonight.
3: Well, joining us tonight from Lorraine, Ohio, is uh, Ohio Mysteries listener Jeff Baxter. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm a retired IT executive, and I am uh, originally
0: from the city of Lorraine. I was born and raised there. But I have been an Elyria resident for over the last 40 years, but I'm pretty much a lifelong Lorain County uh, resident. So I know a lot of the area, a lot of the uh, some of the folklore and things like that. This is uh, just an interesting thing for me.
3: Now, I'm going to guess that this case being 117 years old, that you haven't heard this one before. I've not heard this one. No, (laughs) It's a good (laughs) one, though. It is a good one.
0: It is a very good one.
3: Yeah. Now, let's let's jump to poor Father Ferdinand, because, boy, I think this guy really, really got a bum rap. What are yeah. your thoughts on him? Obviously, he was an early suspect, in, at least in the eyes of the community, uh, which was obviously so desperate to solve this case right away. What do you think about what uh, Father Ferdinand was put through? You know, I- I, I can't
0: imagine what it was like. It was there were so many things that happened to him over the first week, um, the the way he was treated and um, how he was held, and and all the different things that impacted his life that week. It was all the different accounts I read. It was just amazing that he survived it and didn't come out a madman. You know.
3: Yeah, I I have to say, you know, when I first when I was doing the research and then the first time I saw, oh, he actually spent time in jail having to do yeah. with a little boy, you know, right away, that stereotype jumps out and I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. But then you find out that it was not only brought against him by the local Protestant organization, which was having a war with them, but that the accusers were even fined for bringing that case to the, the court and wasting their time. So do you completely dismiss the idea that he had anything to do with it? I do. Yes, I don't think he had anything to do with it. So tell me, what do you think's going on? I mean, who shows up in this woman's bedroom with no motive other than to bash her head in? What is going on? Well,
0: I, I definitely have a theory. And, you know, one of the things that is so different back in 1903 as opposed to today is rail traffic was a was the, the main way that people moved around. And northern Ohio, you know, from Cleveland to Toledo, um, encompassing the cities of Avon and Lorraine and Elyria and Bellevue, I'll throw that in there, and Sandusky, I'm going to throw that in there as well, um, you know, there was... There was a culture of of tramps or hobos, uh, people that moved around on those uh, rail cars for, with freight trains and probably passenger trains if they could get on them too, for, as their method of getting from town to town and city to city. And in fact, one of the things I uncovered said that there was, you know, the um, the Lorraine police were concerned that what they called. The Lakeshore Gang of Tramps had something to do with this murder. And, you know, I don't think that's, a, that's a, a, a bad theory. I think it's a reasonable theory. And I think like any group of people, they would try and protect themselves. You know, and I know from my own grandmother that her parents fed tramps and hobos that came through the little railroad town that, that my grandmother grew up in. So this was definitely part of the culture and a murderer in Lorraine could have easily gotten away by getting to the railroad, which was only three or four blocks, literal blocks, city blocks from where this murder happened, you know? And I know I've walked those streets myself as a, as a high schooler in Lorraine. I know I walked those same streets and, and saw that. But one of the things that I, I, I found was that there was a newspaper account. I read that in Thursday afternoon on you know, April 30th in Avon, Ohio, there were what were called two strange men. You know, they were seen in Avon and they were seen boarding a car for Lorraine. One of the strange men was, was noted to be about five foot six and, and thin. And the, the other gentleman was a tall, slender man. So this was the description that was given by people in Avon that saw them. And they were kind of keeping an eye on these guys because they didn't know who they were or what they were doing there. But later on in Lorraine, these two strange men were also seen. I think it's the same ones because the descriptions given by the people in the neighborhood, oh, coincidentally, by the parsonage. The neighborhood people in the in the area of the parsonage were keeping an eye on these guys because they didn't know who they were either. But they were described as a, as a short, slender guy and another one who was, again, described as a tall, slender man. So, you know, in that neighborhood, they saw them enough to the that they mentioned it to a reporter who was just doing his job canvassing people in the neighborhood for what did they know. So um, it, it appears to me that from Avon to Lorraine, they jumped a train, and after the murder, all the murder was caused by a slender man who was able to, to uh, scale the ladder that was pulled from the neighbor's backyard, and the murder weapon was already upstairs, because another account I read was that the rock uh, that was used to kill her was actually used by Agatha as a doorstop. So it was already upstairs. Nobody had even carried up the ladder. But um, I do think that this person was looking to to commit burglary. And the reason that they were kind of going there was because they knew that, um, you know, Father Charles was going to be away taking care of a funeral on Kelly's Island. And normally at this point in time, it was Agatha and Father Charles were the only two that lived in the house. Um, because uh, Casimir had left a couple of years earlier, and um, except for an occasional guest, they were the only two residing there. So, with Father Charles out of town, the expectation was that she would be there by herself. Well, kind of unexpectedly, um, you know, the brother Casimir he came and stayed the night, probably because he didn't want his uh, uh, sister being alone in a house. Um, because that wasn't a proper thing maybe for an unmarried woman to do. All the other thing that happened was the, the temporary pastor, you know, he came and, and stayed as well, Father Wasler. So that left two people that weren't supposed to be in that parsonage. They were there that night. And I think that really threw the, the burglar off because he was expecting only Agatha but when he opened the door after he got in there, he ran into Father Wesler, and he he actually gave a description of a guy kind of fitting the small guy, who I think turns out later to be, I'll give him his name, Frank Kennedy, as he came to be known by the Sandusky police and the Bellevue police and all the agencies involved. So... Um, you know, it was just startling. The The murder was really an accident. It was not meant to happen. The rock was there, and it, all of a sudden it did. So, I mean, does that make some sense so far?
3: I am in awe. I am in awe. You have found so many details that I did not come across, and I— Absolutely love when our armchairs just surprise us with fresh material because there's a lot there I hadn't heard of, and it is brilliant. I will say, I wonder, as you were talking, I was wondering, though, if the intent was to kill her because if they thought she was the only one in the house— strike her in the head with the rock that was a doorstop which I didn't know and then they would have the the ability to take their time going through the house and stealing what they wanted so kill her open the door to go to the next room and oh crap there's a guy there in the bed we weren't expecting Uh him and then the flight to get out of there It struck me that all the doors in the hallway were open. So clearly this guy had been opening the doors either on his way out or if he had already opened the door to the attic and knew where that was. Maybe he had opened those doors earlier, like what's in here, what's in here, and then opened the door to Agatha's room. Oh, here's Agatha. Kill her and then keep looking. And that gang, the, the gang of tramps, that <laughs> was that was neat. So you said the, the suspect that they were looking at, his name was Frank Kennedy. Did they actually ever tie him to that gang of tramps?
0: You know, it was interesting, and in what I read was that the Lorraine police, who had Detective Mince on it, you know, there were three different detectives involved as well. well I talked about that a little bit too, but they never really did tie him I think I think that there was some religious tension between the Protestants and the Catholics, and I think the Lorraine police used this as an opportunity to further their their hatred of the, of Catholics really and try and pin it on, on on Father Walzer but they never did make a case for uh, you know really charging Kennedy you right. know. Um, I think
3: there might have also been equal animosity toward them for being immigrants because they were, Walser was from Austria. I wouldn't be surprised if the Reichlands also were recent transplants, spoke with an accent, you know, there was a. Big move of Germans coming to the country Uh, in 1903, as a matter of fact, right around that period, Mm. Austro-Hungarian Empire, for the very first time, opened up their country and allowed their citizens to freely leave when prior to that, it was illegal. So that really opened the floodgates. And I'm sure there was a lot of tension in Northeast Ohio with all the German immigrants coming in. And yeah, that certainly could have played a role in there.
0: The notoriety of this case, I mean, I uncovered articles from uh, the Chicago Tribune, uh, New Haven, Connecticut Journal, the Indianapolis News, you know, Mansfield, Sandusky, Illyria, Lorraine, of course, and even the Los Angeles uh, News Herald. Um, I mean, and I'm sure there's more, but uh, its uh, it was a, a lot of fun digging into these things.
3: I you can know- imagine just how sensational it must have been yeah uh, the reward
0: thing, too, I found interesting, and in that there were three different detectives working on this. And one of them was uh, Jake Mintz, who was from the Lorraine Police Department, and he was their detective. But there was also a detective out of Cleveland called uh, Gilbride. i couldn't I didn't catch his first name in any of the articles. And there was another one, uh, Goldsmith. Now Goldsmith was hired um, uh, to pursue the reward put out there. By Lorraine County, Lorraine County Commissioners um, actually put in a thousand dollar reward, and then the Knights of Columbus in Lorraine contributed four thousand, and other agencies and people donated money. And there was actually, I saw an article of a fifteen thousand dollar reward for this, and I didn't realize it, but a lot of detectives who were not really hired by police departments or or were not part of police departments and. And sheriff's departments and things like that. They were freelancers and they would literally chase rewards for their income. So the idea Oh my of, gosh. The idea of a reward was really part of it, a big part of it was to get the high profile, the good detectives to come and try and solve a case. And that's, that's for something, heaven's
3: sakes, got uh, kind of a twist on the, the bounty hunter idea. Yes. Yeah.
0: It's really changed since 1903 for us in in today's world, you know.
3: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. What did did you think of the little uh, piece of color that really got Father uh, Ferdinand in trouble? And that was sending Casimir off to get whiskey while the police are there uh, looking over the crime scene. You know that
0: when I was reading it, I read it in so many different ways. I just I was just surprised. The bartender's name was uh, Spradling. Um, uh, Noah. And he actually was interrogated big time by the Lorraine City Police. In fact, the newspaper article, I, I wrote it down, they called it a, a sweat box examination. So they must have really
3: pressed him really, really hard for information. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, that poor uh,
3: guy! You know, the officer yeah. said, I know a barkeep that'll answer the door. I bet that barkeep never answers the door late at night again. <laughs>
0: and then he got interrogated like crazy but yeah that was a very interesting i mean here it is family members been bloodily murdered and the first thing you're looking or, or whatnot well, i don't want to say maybe not the first thing but you're drinking whiskey after whiskey i don't know it, it on one hand i guess it kind of makes some sense you got to calm the nerves but on the other hand That's really a tough
3: thing. Uh, You know, if the whiskey was in the house, that's one thing. But the idea of like, you know, him (laughs) turning to Casimir and saying, I know your sister was just bludgeoned to death, but would you go out into the streets and find me whiskey? (laughs) I just, I'm like, oh my gosh. And yet all of my ancestors were German immigrants and they were all heavy drinkers. I know many of them were alcoholics. So actually I completely bought it all and understood it all. It's like, I get it.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, in one account I read too said that earlier in the evening that, you know, Agatha and and the father and the brother and, and other friends were enjoying singing German songs and having a drink and having a party, you know, and that's what they had been doing earlier in the evening, too. So I, I get the sense that uh, they were well on their way.
3: Yes, you know? yes, it, and I I think that played a lot into the community's mindset, too, when they decided to kind of turn on him for a while, the idea of all, all the drinking that went on. So now there was that curious case um, just a few months after this happened, of the robbery at the Lorraine hotel, the Farrell house, where somebody had propped a ladder against a window and attempted to get in that way. What do you think? Could, could that have been the same person or persons using the same MO? I, I think
0: it, 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 was a copycat, you know, um, with the hotel, what would the motive be? Did Was there a rumor of, of valuables to be taken? Um, but it, it to me it just appeared to was somebody that got an idea from this case um, because you know Kennedy was at that point in time he was safely in a prison in Fremont uh, for his burglary that he committed in Bellevue a couple hours after the murder. So he-
3: got it, got it. And I thought it was interesting. You said Kennedy had a, a kind of a partner in crime. Um, mm-hmm. because that second coroner who autopsied Agatha thought it was possible there were two people that had attacked her. Now, you know, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I, when you said that right away, I remembered that the second coroner wondered if two people had been involved.
0: Yeah, and, and it, it, the, the, my theory also says that the, the tall, slender man also went up the ladder and was in the house. I think both both mm-hmm. of the uh suspects were up there. But the only one that was ever really ever mentioned was the short guy. But the tall slender man was not involved in the burglary in Bellevue or uh, any of that stuff. Um, okay. Yeah. And the, the other thing is I actually talked uh, or text one person who's a member of the, the Reichlin family today, yeah, lives here in Elyria. But uh, I wasn't able to make connections to do some talking with him. And another person I used to work with actually is a, a great, great, great niece of Agatha. And uh, she's looking forward to connecting with me to get some details on on what actually happened and, and what my theory is as well. I used to work with this gal. So now, was... did
3: she hear of this? Was this a case passed down in family
0: lore? Well, uh, at least the fact that that the Agatha's murder happened. My friend's mother was actually a Reikland. So uh, it did come down through the family, yeah. But oh, none great. of the details on what happened or anything, uh, which was interesting.
3: Well, I'm yeah. glad that we can present them with uh, my search and all your wonderful research, because that's a, a great thing to be able to put in the, uh, the family heirloom box and pass yeah. on.
0: <laughs> One thing I, I thought was interesting was that um, the Lorraine Mayor, Mayor King at the time, had a theory that there was a madman who did this, a maniac, as some of the articles called him, and kind of a, um, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde in Lorraine. They thought that there was a madman on the loose that had um, affections for Agatha and that this person did this in, their, in one of their maniac states.
3: Well, to be honest, we have covered a couple of episodes about maniacs just like that, that just seem to have uh, no real motivation for what they do other than just wanting to go out and kill. So I wouldn't dismiss it. Certainly a possibility. <laughs> Wonderful, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you. Well, you're quite welcome, and thank you so much.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
3: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. John Saylor is from Youngstown, and he's been writing and producing music for about 10 years now. He plays several instruments, and he's actually the second member of the band Sister Luna that we have featured. With a pandemic going on, you know, a lot of these musicians haven't been able to perform publicly. So Sister Luna is making the best use of this time by working on a new album with the intent to release it this summer. We recently featured Hayden Brooke, who's another member of that band. But these guys also perform under their own names. And that's what we're focusing on tonight as we bring you John Saylor and his single, You Should Be Loved. And if you like it, Be sure to find him on Facebook or the website Bandcamp. Just search John Saylor Music.
1: Well, let's have another listen to You Should Be Loved by John Saylor. And we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.